Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in the wilds of Connecticut, this is Obscure Season 2, Frankenstein. I am your host, your friend, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer-in-chief and Georgianologist, Michael Ian Black, back with another exciting episode of Frankenstein, and things are getting exciting at long last with Victor Frankenstein and his dreams, his fate, his nature, all becoming entwined. And last time, he set out to build a, a person. He was going to make a My Little Buddy, except it was going to be a big buddy. He set out to make a My Big Buddy. He has all the knowledge that he needs. He's not going to tell us what that knowledge is, of course, but because he doesn't want to ruin Walton's life and because Mary Shelley has no idea what that knowledge is. But he has uh, figured it all out. He understands it's going to be hard. He understands there's going to be reverses. He understands that ultimately he may not succeed, but gall darn it, he's going to give it a try. And we're excited. I mean, I'm excited. I'm excited to see what happens. He's going to build a great big eight-foot-tall human being out of parts, and, uh, and, and I guess make it so. Now, the question that I don't think he's fully answered yet is why? Like, let's just say, for example, that you or I could make, if we devoted our lives to it from, from scraps and parts, you know, and old, old fan belts we get, we get at the junkyard, we could make a person. What does that even mean? Like you could make perhaps a kind of animated corpse, a walking dead, but how do you imbue that person with a personality, with a consciousness, or uh, dare I say a soul? When Prometheus brings the fire, like fire is fire. Like, you know, fire has its own nature. The body of fire and the spirit of fire are the same. The body of a human and the spirit of a human, I think we can probably say are not the same. I mean, I don't know that we know that definitively, but we certainly can sense it. And we certainly know that there are people who can exist in a kind of vegetative state without consciousness or personality. They can just be kind of kept alive an animated corpse, so to speak. So when when Victor Frankenstein is deciding, hey, I'm going to build a, a person here, he's not really saying I'm going to build a fully conscious person. What he's saying is I'm going to build a body that works. And what that means, no one can quite say. He doesn't even really hazard a guess. I don't think he's thought that far. He just knows that he can do this, and so he's going to do it. So let's just see. So the last thing we read was after having formed this determination and having spent some months in successfully collecting and arranging my materials, I began. 
No one can conceive the variety of feelings which bore me onwards, like a hurricane, in the first enthusiasm of success. Life and death appeared to me ideal bounds, which I should first break through and pour a torrent of light into our dark world. So there's that Prometheus imagery again, the bringer of fire. And we all know about fire, right? Yeah, it warms. It also burns. Barbarino, you're going to get burned. A new species would bless me as its creator and source. Many happy and excellent natures would owe their being to me. So he, in his mind, he's not creating a new person or recreating a person. He's actually creating a new species of person to whom, uh, and, and, and he would be their creator. So he's setting himself up now as God. And this has always been, uh, this has been the running theme through the book of what exactly is God? What is the nature of God? Are we our own gods? Does God create us? Do we create God? Well, he is answering his own question. He is elevating himself to that title. And, uh, you know, look, if you're going to elevate yourself to any title, might as well be God, you know? Like, even Napoleon stopped at emperor. You know, even Napoleon, and we agree that uh, Napoleon had an ego. Like, we can agree. Even he was like, yeah, I'm good with emperor. Frankenstein's like, yeah, I think I'm going to be God. And I think I'm going to invent a new species. They're going to worship me as their creator, and that will be cool. Yeah. No father could claim the gratitude of his child so completely as I should deserve theirs. Pursuing these reflections, I thought that if I could bestow animation upon lifeless matter, I might in process of time, although I now found it impossible, renew life where death had apparently devoted the body to corruption. So yeah, this is getting into a kind of more modern interpretation of what we think of when we think of cheating death. Not so much that we're just bringing into fruition life, any life, like we're trying to bring back our loved ones. And Frankenstein has lost his mother. Frankenstein is sad about that. If you remember in an earlier episode, one of the first ones, I talked about Ray Kurzweil, who has been pursuing this work here in 2020. And, you know, ultimately he says he's trying to bring back his dad. You know, he's trying to extend his own life and reanimate his father. Do you think you can bring back your father in a way that he would have continuity of consciousness? I've got hundreds of boxes of documents and recordings and movies and photographs, and I'm in the process of digitizing all that to create a, an avatar that an AI would create that would be as much like my father as possible given the information we have about him including possibly his DNA. So, you know, new thoughts, old thoughts, they all kind of remain the same. I mean, it goes back to Lazarus, I guess, and probably before. Just people rising up out of the grave because death is a bummer. Maybe it doesn't need to be said, but I'll say it. Death is a bummer. And when you lose somebody, it gradually dawns on you that that person's not coming back. And that is, um, you know, that's a bummer. Mary Shelley expressed it better earlier in the book 
but I'm, I'm being more concise. Death is a bummer. If we could figure out a way to work around death, we'd all be happier, dot, 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 because we don't know. But the thought makes us happy. No death, groovy. More pie. Less death, more pie. These thoughts supported my spirits while I pursued my undertaking with unremitting ardor. My cheek had grown pale with study and my person had become emaciated with confinement. Sometimes, on the very brink of certainty, I failed. Yet still I clung to the hope which the next day or the next hour might realize. One secret which I alone possessed was the hope to which I had dedicated myself, and the moon gazed on my midnight labors while, with unrelaxed and breathless eagerness, I pursued nature to her hiding places. Who shall conceive the horrors of my secret toil as I dabbled among the unhallowed damps of the grave, or tortured the living animal to animate the lifeless clay? So he's just being ghoulish, you know. He's just going out to cemeteries and, like, poking around and prodding and ripping up arms and taking heads and, you know, spooning out eyeballs and putting them in his pocket and then finding a raccoon and killing it and trying to get it to come back to life by putting probes in its brain. You know, he's doing all that shit. All the, like, kind of serial serial killer sociopath stuff that uh, would probably get you locked up if anybody knew now, you know, if you were doing that. And then certainly then. Like, you know, it's ghoulish. It's ghoulish and creepy and probably not going to lead anywhere. But, you know, he is a man driven. And who knows? Who knows what's going to happen? My limbs now tremble and my eyes swim with the remembrance. But then a resistless and almost frantic impulse urged me forward. I seem to have lost all soul or sensation but for this one pursuit. It was indeed but a passing trance that only made me feel with renewed acuteness so soon as, the unnatural stimulus ceasing to operate, I had returned to my old habits. So in a way, and maybe I'm taking it too far because that's what I do, in a way... Can we say that in trying to uh, breathe life into the dead, he in fact extinguished his own life? Listen to this. I seem to have lost all soul or sensation, but for this one pursuit. So everything that sort of animated him was reduced to this one kind of tiny quasar blazing in him. But everything that kind of made him a human and a person, his, his sensitivity and delicacy, which while maybe uh, below average than others, but was certainly was brought to the fore by his dear sister, like all of that is being subsumed by this relentless quest. And he was in a trance until, you know, he, I guess it was a short, brief thing, but then he reemerged a new man. Or the old, the same old man, but changed. As soon as the unnatural stimulus ceasing to operate, I had returned to my old habits. I collected bones from charnel houses and disturbed with profane fingers the tremendous secrets of the human frame. I think he means um, 
butt stuff. I think he's talking about butt stuff there, the tremendous secrets of the human frame. Yeah, that's butt stuff. In a solitary chamber, or rather cell, at the top of the house, and separated from all the other apartments by a gallery and staircase, I kept my workshop of filthy creation. My eyeballs were starting from their sockets in attending to the details of my employment. The dissecting room and the salt slaughterhouse furnished many of my materials, and often did my human nature turn with loathing from my occupation, whilst still urged on by an eagerness which perpetually increased, I brought my work near to a conclusion. Well, that was fast. I mean, that was was very fast. Um, uh, You know, I guess I expected this would take years, if not decades. But uh, on page 54, he says, I began, and on the top of page 56, I brought my work near to a conclusion. Meanwhile, we spent 50 pages talking about his upbringing. We spent another 40 pages or whatever, you know, with Walton on the ship. And But the heart of this thing, like literally the heart of this thing, uh, seems to be, be have taken up with a page and a half of him like, yeah, I worked on it really hard and it was gross. Um, I did a little butt stuff and then... Uh, I neared completion. All right. The summer months passed while I was thus engaged, heart and soul in one pursuit. It was a most beautiful season. Never did the fields bestow a more plentiful harvest, where the vines yield a more luxuriant vintage. But my eyes were insensible to the charms of nature. And the same feelings which made me neglect the scenes around me caused me also to forget those friends who were so many miles absent and whom I had not seen for so long a time. I knew my silence disquieted them, and I well remembered the words of my father. I know that while you are pleased with yourself, you will think of us with affection, and we shall hear regularly from you. You must pardon me if I regard any interruption in your correspondence as a proof that your other duties are equally neglected. That's a quote from his dad. I don't remember what his dad sounded like or if I even did a voice for his dad, but I was trying to sound kind of daddy there. Daddish? Daddy? Dad-dad-like? Dad-esque? I knew well, therefore, what would be my father's feelings. But I could not tear my thoughts from my employment, loathsome in itself, but which had taken an irresistible hold of my imagination. I wished, as it were, to procrastinate all that related to my feelings of affection until the great object, which swallowed up every habit of my nature, should be completed. So, I just want to take a pause to think about those last two paragraphs. Because I find a lot of uh, deep... Christianity in them. And you know, I'm looking for that stuff. So of course I'm going to find it. But if we think about the summer months passing uh, while I was thus engaged, it was a most beautiful season. Never did the fields bestow a more plentiful harvest. The vines yielded the most luxuriant vintage. So he is surrounded by a literal Eden. It is as if God himself is sort of saying to Victor Frankenstein, hey, buddy, 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 
Slow down, buddy. Look around. Look at what I have provided here for you. So many grapes, dude. Like, there's just so many grapes. There's so much wheat, dude. You know? Veggies out the wazoo. Like, whatever. Like, gorgeous days. You can go swimming and sunning. Like, all the stuff is right here for you. This is life. This is the life that I gave you. And what are you doing? Parting around in slaughterhouses and, and dissecting laboratories. Like, what the fuck are you doing, Victor? And Victor is not oblivious to it. Like Victor says, like, look, look outside, look how gorgeous it is. But I'm choosing to to spend my time doing this shit. And then he talks about the father, right? The words of my father. I know that while you are pleased with yourself, you will think of us with affection and we shall hear regularly from you. It's like father, the creator, right? Is saying, hey, buddy, I know like you're doing great shit, but don't ignore me. You know, the father, you can call that lowercase f or capital F, but it is rich with a kind of theological foreboding, is it not? And Victor's like, yeah, I know. I'm going to get to it, dude. I'm going to get to it. I'm going to say thank you, dad, and I love you, and I miss you, and I, you know, and, and I'm going to get to the seasons, and I'm going to get to life, and I'm going to get to the swimming hole, like all of it. I'm going to get to all of it. I just need to finish this little shit that I'm doing with the tree of knowledge. That's all. I just need to, I'm just, I'm, I'm doing a little, I'm doing a little something here with the tree of knowledge. I need to just like get that in the bag, and then we're going to be good. Then we're going to be good. And, but he can hear the father's words echoing in his ears. Oh, I'm stretching. Ah, what a good time to take a break, right? Sometimes you just need to stretch it out. Ah. All right, I'm going to stretch and we'll be right back on Obscure. I'm back. So I'm going to continue reading on about the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost and all the rest of it. I then thought that my Father would be unjust if he ascribed my neglect to vice or faultiness on my part. But I am now convinced that he was justified in conceiving that I should not be altogether free from blame. Yeah, I think not. I should be. (laughs) He was was justified in conceiving that I should not be altogether free from blame. No, this is all all on you, buddy. Like whatever happens, it's all on you. Okay. A human being in perfection ought always to preserve a calm and peaceful mind and never to allow passion or a transitory desire to disturb his tranquility. I do not think that the pursuit of knowledge is an exception to this rule. If the study to which you apply yourself has a tendency to weaken your affections and to destroy your taste for those simple pleasures in which no alloy can possibly mix, then that study is certainly unlawful. That is to say, not befitting the human mind. 
If this rule were always observed, if no man allowed any pursuit whatsoever to interfere with the tranquility of his domestic affections, Greece had not been enslaved. Caesar would have spared his country. America would have been discovered more gradually, and the empires of Mexico and Peru had not been destroyed. Well, that's interesting. A little social commentary mixed in here. I mean, my eye is obviously drawn to the idea that America would have been discovered more gradually, that Greece would not have been enslaved. Mexico and Peru, their empires would still be there. It makes me think that uh, Mary Shelley herself is a bit of a humanist and a bit of, you know, a lib. We know her mother, Mary Wollstonecraft, I think her name is, was, you know, a big time, big shot feminist back then and is the subject of a little bit of controversy right here and now in this present day when a statue of her was revealed in, let me go to my research machine. I've got to crank it up. As you know, it does have a crank on it. Uh, let's see where that statue is. Near London, the mother of feminism. It's, a, it's called the Maggie Hambling sculpture. The controversy is that the statue of the mother of feminism is nude. Like Mary Wollstonecraft is just portrayed as like a ripped, naked, like Athenian figure. And, you know, my initial instinct is is a little bit mixed about that because on one hand you go, well, wait a minute, why are we equating feminism with naked bodies? On the other hand, if we're saying she is the mother of feminism, then we can, I think, sort of envision her in kind of a, a goddessy, maternal, uh, rising from the sea kind of visage, which is sort of what we're seeing. Um, she is emerging from stone, a woman fully formed, strong. You know what? The more I look at it, the more I'm cool with it. You know what? Suck it, contro controversy. I've settled it. It's a good statue. I don't know how much it looks like her. It looks like Mary Wollstonecraft, but, uh, but whatever. I mean... You know, we, we, we tend to think of idealized versions of humanity in the nude, don't we? I mean, I'm thinking about David right now, just young David sitting there with his cock out, but just like gorgeous, you know, like those big hands and, and, you know, kind of, he doesn't have ripped abs, but he, you know, he's in shape. He's going to slew Goliath. He's going to slay Goliath. He will only have slew him in the past. Um, and he's naked, you know? He's naked because that is personhood in its most resplendent in some ways, in its most noble in some ways. So I'm, I'm okay with it. All right. I forgot where I was. Oh, yeah. America would have been discovered more gradually, uh, meaning I guess that it would like there wouldn't have been this headlong rush to settle the frontier and maybe the whole thing could have been um, more amicable between all of the peoples living there. Ditto, Mexico, Peru. Anyway, back to the book. But I forget that I am moralizing in the most interesting part of my tale. <laughs> so Mary Shelley's like, yeah, I, I get it. Like, I, I get it. I Like, shut up, Mary. Uh, so I forget that I'm moralizing in the most interesting part of my tale, and your looks remind me to proceed. <laughs> 
I wonder if Percy was like, you know, Mary, this thing where you're just like, you know, lecturing us, should we take that out? And she's like, I'm going to keep it, but I'll put a little, I'll put a little thing in there. My father made no reproach in his letters and only took notice of my silence by inquiring into my occupations more particularly than before. Winter, spring, and summer passed away during my labors, but I did not watch the blossom or the expanding leaves, sights which had always before yielded me supreme delight. So deeply was I engrossed in my occupation. The leaves of that year had withered before my work drew to a close, and now every day showed me more plainly how well I had succeeded. Um, just a quick, uh, quick note to, to say, the leaves of that year had withered before my work drew to a close. So it's almost like nature itself is saying, buddy, I gave you a chance and you blew it. The leaves are withering. The cold is descending. Winter is coming as his work nears completion. Every night I was oppressed by a slow fever and I became nervous to a most painful degree. The fall of a leaf startled me, and I shunned my fellow creatures as if I had been guilty of a crime. Sometimes I grew alarmed at the wreck I perceived that I had become. The energy of my purpose alone sustained me. My labors would soon end, and I believed that exercise and amusement would then drive away incipient disease, and I promised myself both of these when my creation should be complete. End of chapter four, and as good a place as any to stop our reading for today. Um, we all know that feeling, right, of like almost mindless pursuit. It's a combination of fully mindful and utterly mindless, the blind pursuit of something, you know, when ambition outstrips our own humanity. I mean, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how much, like, I, I mean, yes, I have done that. I have, I have absolutely done that, um, particularly in my earlier years. And Victor Frankenstein is, of course, in his early years. These are the passions of the youths, Mary Shelley herself, a youth. And so like, I think, I think those of us who are a little bit past that time in our lives can look back and sort of feel some sympathy and perhaps empathy for those who are still caught up in that kind of ambition. Um, for some people, it never goes away. And the people that I know or have known who are that chained to their own ambition tend to be pretty unhappy. I mean, that's all, that's all Victor Frankenstein's dad was saying, basically. It was like, yeah, do your work, but like, you know, live your life. Don't neglect everybody else. Don't neglect the things that are equally important in this life. Um, and his father, again, capital F, lowercase f, you know, it's all kind of the same message. And now I'm thinking about Thomas Hardy again and how God essentially abandoned Jude, or perhaps it would be more accurate to say that Jude abandoned God. And 
uh, in pursuit of his own ambitions and goals and lusts. <sighs> you know, none of this is making me any more religious, but it does, I think, help concept, uh, contextualize something about religion that I think is compelling, which is the idea that everything, everything is connected to everything else. And when we disconnect ourselves from the larger parts of our nature and the natures of others, or I guess we just say from nature, we end up losing too much. The, 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 the price is too high. And that seems to be what Victor Frankenstein is telling our friend Walton. Like, don't go down this path, dude. You know, this, this trip up to the North Pole is fine and fun and the rest of that. But like, don't go nuts with it. You know, you, first of all, you almost died in the ice. I almost died in the ice. Like, everybody almost fucking died up here. What are we even doing here, my dude? Like, what are we even doing here? And why are we even out here in space? out on the edge of the universe, you and I, when we could be home by the hearth, surrounded by loved ones, drinking hot toddies together. That's what we should be doing. And as I look out my own window here in the wilds of Connecticut, it is a dreary November day. The rain is coming down. As Guns N' Roses once called it, that cold November rain, uh, there is a bit of a chill here in the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library, and I think I could do with a hot toddy of my own, or at the very least, another steaming cup of delicious English breakfast tea. So I will leave you now to prepare myself some of that, warm myself by the fire, and in fact, I might actually build a fire and, uh, and contemplate all that we have gone through today, the nature of myself, the nature of all of you, the nature of nature, and I don't know, maybe maybe I'm already drunk. Whatever the, Whatever's going on with me right now, I hope that you take some warmth with you uh, yourselves as we await the next proselytizing episode of Obscure. But until then, I wish you adieu. Obscure Season 2 Frankenstein is produced by Robin Lynn, Jennifer Brennan, Mary Shimkin, and myself here in the wilds of Connecticut where I record and elsewhere. Original music by Craig Wedgren. If you enjoy this podcast, please go to Apple Podcasts and drop in some stars for us, why don't you? Write a kind review, why don't you? It helps. How does it help? I have no idea, but it makes me feel good. 